Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ and welcome to Christ Church of Livingston County Teaching Ministry. Christ Church is a member of the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches, Tyndale Presbytery. The following audio recording is from a Covenant Renewal Liturgy at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. As we come before God to worship and praise Him, we come with uh, dirty hearts, sinful lives. And so we need to come for cleansing uh, early on in our meeting with the Lord. We have the call to confession from Scripture printed in the bulletin this week, so please follow along. Colossians 3. If then you have been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. As far the reading of God's word. Uh, For a few weeks here, I'm going to try tying our call to confession to the catechism portion that we'll read after the confession of sins. So today we have Christ's descent into hell and his resurrection. When God takes us through hard times, we are often tempted to forget that God is always being good to those who love him. When he puts Jesus on the cross on Good Friday, he was being good to us and good to him. For the joy set before him, Jesus endured that cross faithfully. And so in our hard times, in our difficulties, we often sin by getting more selfish. This hurts too much. I guess God doesn't care. But God planned for his own son's suffering, all his wrath against all our sin. God does know the difficulties we go through. So in hard times especially, but all the time, set your mind on things above. It is so easy to confine our efforts to the four walls of our house or the four walls of our cubicle, whatever it may be, and to forget that Christ has risen, he has overcome, that he reigns and rules over all. We live by his resurrection power, and he will restore us completely at the end. Forgetting all this is is a sin in itself, and it leads to other sins of worry, anxiety, trusting ourselves instead of trusting the Lord. So let's confess our sins. Please kneel if you're able, and we'll pray. Well, a couple of weeks ago, I gave you a manifesto on what we're all about here, preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, looking at the broad scope of everything, that that, that the gospel covers all things, and also the core message of of atonement at the cross. And then last week, Pastor Strawbridge was here, and he followed that up nicely, uh, speaking of reconciliation in relationships and forgiveness. That's a key outworking of the core gospel of grace, the the forgiveness that we have received. We want to uh, extend that to others. So you'll find this is a consistent approach of mine in the pulpit. Take the text, preach the gospel of grace in Christ that we're sure to find in that text, and then look at how that text shows us how to work out our salvation, how to work that out in your life. And each uh, scripture text uh, gives us something a bit unique and different in how to do that. 
uh, but along with that, we uh, receive the same gospel. So today we turn to how the gospel shapes family and church life. Church life next week, family this week. How are we supposed to be living if we believe the gospel of Jesus Christ? So uh, marriage and parenting this week in light of the gospel. And next week we'll look more at the, God's design for the church. Now this is, this is big picture stuff, right? It's not like I can cover everything in all detail when we're at 30,000 feet like this. So uh, this is just to tamp down expectations that I'm going to cover every question you have and get into every nitty-gritty parenting thing you've ever wondered about. Probably not going to get there. But we're going to look uh, in depth at, at how the gospel connects to parenting, how the gospel connects to marriage, how it should shape that. So, uh, again, the big picture first. And I want to start in Acts 2. When Peter preaches that Pentecost sermon, uh, the response, they ask, what should we do? That They come right out and ask, and that's always the response of the repentant heart. Repent, Peter says, verse 38, be baptized, receive the Spirit. Verse 39, the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are far off. So, believe this gospel yourself first. The promise is to you. Believe it yourself. And I'm going to spend a bit of time there, actually, this morning in introduction. Then, the promise is to your children, he says, also in verse 39. Teach your children. And the promise is to all who are afar off. And there, it's, a, it's an oblique reference to uh, all the nations that will come to believe that, that um, the rest of the book of Acts will describe uh, Peter and uh, Paul uh, going on their missionary journeys to, to those who are far off. And today we send to uh, far off places like Bogota, Colombia, and we bring the gospel there. So uh, the promise is to you, to your children, and to those who are far off. So uh, we'll look at to you and to your children this morning and then consider uh, other matters another time. So believe the gospel yourself first. Uh, and this may be something of, of a hobby horse. Maybe you'll get sick of it fast. But I think it's the main thing of uh, what I'm called to say as a minister of the gospel. So I don't feel too bad about repeating this theme. Uh, this means everything we do once we put our trust in Christ to forgive us of our sins, everything else we do, we do by faith. That's how we're called to live. The Bible says, whatever is not of faith is sin. So everything we do, that our faith in Christ needs to permeate everything. All the parenting principles and advice, any technique you try in your marriage or with your children, you, tr you try trusting God to fix what's messed up. Uh, there's a podcast that I like to listen to by um, Searcy Institute. I don't know if you've heard of Searcy. Uh, they're uh, classical education folks out of North Carolina. And there was a good one just a couple weeks ago on uh, homeschooling high schoolers. Uh, and the, the, the mom they were interviewing was talking about, uh, she was on like num child number three or five that they were homeschooling high schoolers. And she was talking about the mistakes that she had made on number one which often happens, right? And it was just an excellent article, I thought, where she said, my early mistake was, as soon as my teenager said something that was a little bit off or a little wrong, I jumped in and interrupted right away because I had to fix that. I had to fix that. And my mistake was thinking that I, as the parent, could fix it with my teenager. And now after a few children had left the nest, she was a little bit wiser and realizes, look, only God can change the heart. 
So I'm going to listen more first, see what, what's going on here. And I thought that was a wise thing. See, there's a lot of self-reliance that slips in when we get really concerned to raise our children well. But there's no guarantee that if I do X, then the result is going to be the perfect child that comes out exactly as I expect. Now, we have to be careful there. God does promise to use our faithful parenting to bless our children, of course. Not taking anything away from that. But we have to trust him or it's going to go sideways. Same is true in our marriages. When you're in a vicious cycle and you decide to be the bigger person, right? I'm not going to snip back when he makes that snide comment tonight. And you don't. And you don't say anything about it. And you're feeling pretty good about it. Too, right? You're being the bigger person. And then tomorrow night comes, and you know what? He does it again. But I thought that he would stop if I stopped. Well, now, yes, what you did was good, but you're trusting your actions to change things. You're not trusting God to change your husband. You see the problem? We, we get trusting ourselves instead of believing the gospel of God's grace. And that gospel reminds us in Colossians 2, 6, we have to walk in Christ as we have received him. Right? Well, think about that as good Calvinists. Right? Most of us know the whole Arminian debate. Right? We can rehearse how we received Christ. It wasn't up to us at all. God had to work in our heart first before we were going to make any kind of decision for Christ. But we often forget this when your wife is doing that irritating thing again, or when your child is sinning, and you think it's up to you to fix it, or no one will. We become functional Arminians, and we slip off the point of trusting God. Now, again, this is all in introduction, but I'm not saying we need to be more passive in striving to follow and obey God. Faith is busy. Faith is vibrant. Faith is alive with good deeds. Just be careful not to trust the doing, but to trust the God who gives the heart to trust and obey. Paul says it in Galatians 3, Having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? In other words, do you start by faith, but then it's really up to you to obey God? The rhetorical question says, no, of course not. You still have to trust God in all of your doing and diligent obedience. Uh, we sing of this, by the way, in, in Amazing Grace. That, that classic hymn. Through many dangers, toils and snares, I have already come. T'was grace that brought me safe thus far. Grace will lead me home. We continue to rely on grace all the way. So, again, all this to say, believe the gospel yourself first and continue believing it wherever God calls you to serve. What must we do? They asked at that Pentecost sermon. And usually we're looking for a list of deeds to check off, right? They ask Jesus the same question. What must we do to work the works of God? And Jesus says, the work of God is this, believe in the one he sent. Always start there. Well, here's another way this can go wrong. One more uh, section under this introduction. When we're called to believe, often in, instead of our faith uh, getting misplaced on the wrong thing, right? We, our, our faith slips so easily from Jesus to our own actions, to our own thoughts, our own feelings. That's, that's what we've been talking about so far. Uh, faith can also give way to fear. 
faith can give way to fear. And, and this happens especially in marriage and in parenting. That's why I'm bringing it up. Uh, when Sarah and I became parents for the first time, uh, or maybe it was even before, maybe we were just expecting, I forget, but we heard a parenting uh, talk, and the, the story was told of the young child that, ran, uh, that was on the front lawn and ran toward the street, and his parents called him back. He said, come back away from the road, and the, parent, the child did not listen. He was not trained to obey. So he kept on running out into the road. He was hit by a car and killed. Now, when you hear that in a parenting talk as a new parent, that'll certainly motivate you to take seriously, to train your children to obey their parents. But it wasn't until recently, for me personally, that I realized how foundational that fear had become in my whole parenting outlook. Overwhelming my faith in God's promises. Right? Faithless fear will lead you to, uh, to anger, to carping, to whining, to otherwise hurting the ones that you're trying to love. I hope, I hope I'm getting that point across well. It's not like, again, we're, of course we're called to keep our children safe. There's a godly fear there's obviously prudential wisdom. But if that fear is at the foundation of what you're doing, it, then you have lost uh, track of your faith in God. Are you aware of how many times in the Bible we're told not to be afraid? Do not fear. It's a primal instinct in us. It comes naturally to be afraid. And First John 4 says, perfect love casts out fear. Now, you know, we're not talking about godly fear, which we need to have that respect and reverence for the God who is far greater than us. We're talking about a fear that drives out faith, that makes us look away from God for help. So Psalm 27, David sings us in a different direction. Yahweh is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? So again, I spend so much time on this, faith and fear, because these are ever-present competing forces in marriage, in parenting, in family life. Let's say something stands between you and your husband, and you've tried to bring it up before, but he didn't respond the greatest. What are you going to do next? Does fear win, and you decide you're just going to avoid this, and it's a wedge that's driven between the two of you over time? Or do you trust God and the Holy Spirit working in your spouse and dive in again? These are important matters. Well, we're already talking about marriage. Let's, let's come to marriage. When it, when it comes to marriage, it takes faith to cultivate that relationship. It also takes faith, if we turn to Ephesians 5, uh, to follow God's design for the structure of marriage. Wives, submit to your husbands. That takes some faith. That takes a little bit of faith for me to preach on that in my second week here, preaching on that. The husband is the head of the wife. Many, many Christians have thrown off this design. But it's still in the Bible. It's still God's way. It surely takes faith for a wife to respect her husband. That doesn't come naturally to her when he's being a doofus. That doesn't come naturally. It takes faith takes faith for a husband to be a responsible leader of his wife. 
It comes more naturally for him to, to blame her or to let her run things. Think of Adam in the garden letting Eve eat the fruit and then blaming her for it. This woman you gave me. So it takes faith just to follow this structure. It takes faith to take God at his word. This is how things are called to be. He's set things up this way. So why are we talking, though, about marriage first? The second sermon after I say, here's the gospel, now let's talk about marriage. What's that all about? Well, we talk about working out the gospel in our lives. The answer here is in Ephesians 5, that marriage is a picture of Christ and the church, of the gospel itself. Jesus lays down his life for the church, washes her clean. Our spots are removed, we are provided for, we are known, we are loved. You can put the gospel in a marriage picture like that. And we're called to live out the gospel in this kind of marriage analogy. We receive the love of Christ. We're faithful to him. We seek to build up his household. That, that analogy works as well for the unmarried as for the married, notice. This is a picture that doesn't exclude singles. It's a picture that gives us the design of how things generally are meant to be, and it helps us in how to relate to Christ. The picture of marriage shows us how we're to live for the Lord. So husbands, sacrifice for your wife, whether you think she deserves it or not. You didn't deserve Christ's sacrifice, but he was gracious anyway. C.S. Lewis says at one point, that according to this uh, verse 25 of Ephesians 5, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Lewis uh, meditates very helpfully on that. He says it appears from that verse that marriage is most Christ-like when it feels most like a crucifixion. Love your wife as Christ gave himself for the church. That's going to be tough and take faith often. Think of the faith that it takes for Jesus to go to the cross, to trust God. We have the same kind of faith, trust in God, when we lay down our lives for our wives, for our families, as husbands. The, the feminist impulse to reject a woman's submission to her husband completely misses this point. God raises his people from the dust to be united with his son who sits at his right hand. The whole point is that he's elevating the church, the bride. And so uh, cultures that are permeated with the gospel of Christ elevate uh, the wives, the women in that culture. Wives are called to honor and to celebrate this sacrifice. Take the work of Christ, which you couldn't have done yourself, and beautify it, adorn it with your own work. And the church at the end of time, Revelation 19 says, is dressed in fine linen, the righteous acts of the saints. So we're called to do our work as well. So, so there's the, the structure of marriage in Ephesians 5, uh, that structure to trust, to follow. Uh, there's the relationship to cultivate in love. Ephesians 4 again speaks of that, uh, calling us to gentleness, uh, long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. Those are really practical words when you're talking about being married for 10 or 30 years and raising toddlers or teenagers. Bear with one another in love. 
And we're doing all of this, again, back to Ephesians 4.1, because we're called to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. Paul's connecting there the gospel. You've been called uh, by grace into the light of Christ, into forgiveness of your sins. So walk worthy of that. There's a congruity of that justification with how we are called to live. So, again, that's all you're going to get on marriage. I know there's a lot more we could say, but there's other issues to consider. So Acts 2 says, uh, the promise is to you and to your children. To your children. So let's look at raising covenant children uh, briefly. From the very beginning of the apostolic message of Christ, dead and raised, here in Acts 2, from the very beginning, the call to repentance and faith, God has extended that promise to the children of believers. Just as God promised Abraham descendants and then had him circumcise those descendants as an act of faith in that promise, just as he spoke to Isaac and Jacob after his promise to Abraham, after Abraham dies, God speaks to Isaac. When Isaac dies, God speaks to Jacob. He's fulfilling that promise. Just like that, here in Ephesians 6 now, God speaks to the children in the church of Ephesus. You're listening up, boys and girls? I'm going to start talking to you now. Because the Bible talks directly to you. You are part of God's people. The last couple years in Virginia, we attended a teen summer camp of all CREC kids. And one of the pastors there was really fond of saying to the teenagers, to the kids, you aren't the, the people are telling you all the time, you're the future of the church. That's not right. He says, you're not the future of the church. You're the church now. <laughs> nice little play on words, right? Kids, you are the church. You are part of the body. We don't talk this way just because everyone likes kids. We don't baptize babies just because they're cute. Right? We, we, we do like you, and you're very endearing at times. But we include you because God tells us to. Let the little children come to me, Jesus says. Again, you aren't invited. No one is. We aren't invited to Christ because you have something really great to offer Jesus. It's a message of grace. He simply wants to restore you to how you're supposed to be. All creation must come to the Lord, kids, you included. So Ephesians 6.1 says, Children, obey your parents. A big part of your task before the Lord is learning obedience. Moms and dads and adults have to keep learning this too, you know. It's not like we've learned it and we've got it mastered. That's not the point. But as kids, we need to learn early that we have to bend our will to God. We need to do what He wants not what we want. So kids, obey your parents in the Lord. That's the first commandment with a promise, uh, Ephesians 6 says. And parents, uh, we see our calling in verse 4. Fathers, don't provoke your children to wrath. We'll come back to that. But bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. And the word there is something like way of life. Training and admonition, paideia in the Greek. Way of life, culture even. Uh, so it, it's a very encompassing kind of word, in other words. In other words, and especially when we're parenting toddlers, we, we get more into the habit of training behavior, and that's appropriate. That's the age-appropriate thing to do. But we do train certain behaviors into our children or out of them. We do that. But the training goes beyond rules of do and don't. Kids, we want you to behave in God's ways, 
But the bigger goal is to love God's ways and to, to pursue them, to learn more about them. Jesus says that when he's asked, what's the greatest commandment? He quotes Deuteronomy 6, which we read earlier. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And then Deuteronomy 6, not two verses later, it reads, Teach these commandments diligently to your children. Talk of them when you sit in your house, when you drive to the store, paraphrasing, when you go to bed, when you wake up. When they ask you, verse 20, what it's all about, tell them the story of how God redeemed you from Egypt at the Red Sea. Tell them how Jesus redeems us from our sin and guilt at the cross. We teach our children these things. It's so critical to do so. And then halfway through the Christian education point, if you're following in the outline now. So uh, we need to teach our children these things. This is Christian education. Now, you might do this in a homeschool setting, a day school setting. Notice I'm sticking with principles here and not getting much into methods of how a marriage should go, what curriculum to use, uh, and, and so on. Uh, we can talk about those things sometimes. But the principles are uh, critical. The gospel is supposed to transform normal life in every nook and cranny. Our life day in, day out, as married, as brothers and sisters, as boys and girls. The gospel, the word of God has something uh, to say. Now when we talk about Christian education, this is a big topic, uh, it's important to remember the, the gifts, not idols point. Education is not the savior. Right? Many uh, secular people who especially those who push for more government spending, for example, of public schools and that whole topic, many of those have as a, as a backdrop to that the, the assumption that education is the savior of society. It's the Enlightenment way of viewing things. And we need to avoid falling into that trap ourselves. Education itself is not the savior, but it is a tool that God gives us uh, for great blessing in our families. And it's the same with marriage and with children. These things are, are God's design for life. They're, they're blessings, they're gifts. But I have seen it fairly often uh, where I've seen some of the carnage of making them idols. These are not idols to pursue desperately or you're lost. You want to be married, but now, it's, now you're 35, now you're 40 years old, and you still want to be married and God's not bringing someone. What do you do? Is your life destroyed because, you, because God didn't provide you with marriage? No. So be careful. Don't look to your spouse for ultimate meaning and satisfaction in life. Uh, he cannot uh, provide you with that ultimate thing that only God uh, can fill. If you look to your spouse for that, you're going to wind up hurting your family with the very thing meant to bless them. Uh, Doug Wilson likes to talk about the, that old the, the ritual law in Leviticus, don't boil a baby goat in its mother's milk. The, the, the principle there is what I'm talking about. The, the mother's milk is what's meant to bless that baby goat. It's supposed to be life-giving. But many times we take what's supposed to be life-giving and we mess it up. And, and because we're trusting ourselves or, or, or looking not to God but to this method or something, we wind up hurting our family with it. In my circles in the past, some uh, made an idol of family worship, for example. 
Family worship's a great thing to, to bring your children before the throne, before the word of God. But if you get all uh, wrapped around the axle, it's got to be for 20 minutes, and we've got to do this and this and this, and the kids are going to listen. And it gets a little cranky, and it gets a little uh, aggressive, right? That, that, that can become, that can start to hurt the family instead of bless them. And again, to get into details of that, that, that gets a little tricky. How that plays out will vary uh, depending on the family, depending on uh, the condition of the children, what they can handle, how long, uh, what they need to hear. So it's not always helpful to, to, I can't possibly address all the specifics. Well, if it's like this, then this. If it's like this, then that. I could do that all day long. But the, the principle here is this is a blessing. You do want to uh, engage in family devotions, but, but not in a way that trusts that, makes it an idol that makes you think you're pleasing God by doing that, so I've got to do it this way and do that and that. Now you've, you've gone off the, the track. This is a gift God gives us to enjoy. Another way to put this is, remember the Heidelberg Catechism, the first question. Right? What's your only comfort in life and in death? Often, we are tempted to put something else for an answer. And something good. Right? My only comfort is my husband. My only comfort is that my children are raised in the faith. No. My only comfort is that I belong to Jesus. Now again, of course, I'm not trying to set those against each other. We want to pursue good marriages. We want our children to be raised in the faith. But these gifts can only be found in Christ. That's the meaning of Luke 14. These jarring words that Jesus gives us. If you want to follow me, you need to hate your father and mother. What, what is he saying? It, it's, it's hyperbole. He's saying you need to put me first before anything else most precious to you on earth in this life. I've got to come first. You've got to be willing to let goods and kindred go, as we just say. That is a high cost. To follow Jesus. But it's worth it. He's uh, the high and mighty one. So many believers in the world live in situations where they need to forsake their family to follow Jesus. Many singles would like to be married, but the right person hasn't come along yet. Many good Christians come from broken homes or blended families. And they're trying to put the pieces together. And God picks you up where you are. And we want to pursue a living according to God's design, but we also need to love and receive those who don't have a perfect track record. You don't either. None of us do. So, again, if we make these things into idols instead of gifts, we tend to get censorious and persnickety on the details of how the other family is doing this or that. If that's happening, we might be giving way to fear instead of faith or, or making the gift of godly family practice something of an idol. It's more important to us than receiving one another. That's important. Well, that's, uh, that's, that's a little window into God's design for the family today. Work out your salvation in family life. That's the key. We're called to do that. Forgive each other as God forgave you. Follow God's design for marriage. These things all flow naturally 
The gospel is meant to connect to our normal, natural lives and transform them. So let's turn to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the gospel that that brings to us cleansing and forgiveness. Thank you for the way that cleansing and forgiveness works out in our relationships. Help us, Lord, to be diligent, to cultivate our marriages, to pursue marriage in a godly way, to raise our children in the faith, to be diligent to uh, correct and train them, especially when it's at a time of the day or the week when we don't feel like it. Uh, Grant us that diligence in wisdom. Give us wisdom to know, Lord, what battles we should fight, where we are to extend uh, mercy and joy and grace, and where we need to correct and raise a red flag. Heavenly Father, your word gives us this wisdom, if we would but ask. So by your Holy Spirit, Lord, transform our own hearts, our family lives together. We ask all this in the name of Jesus Christ, who taught us to pray, saying, the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. This Lord's table is a family matter. Our Lord uses a family picture, a table, purposely, because he is restoring his family. What is happening when you're brought into a new family, around a new table? What's happening is adoption. We are adopted as God's children. God made you his sons and daughters when he sent Jesus to die to pay for your sins. You are brought in from the cold into the warmth of God's house. And he means for you never to shiver in bondage or fear again. We can cry out to our God as Abba, basically Hebrew for Daddy or Papa. You see, we have not just food before us. We have forgiveness of our sins at the cross. We have an older brother, faithful in Jesus Christ. We have a family of believers around us. And we have the pure affection of a faithful father for us. It doesn't mean that everything is perfect. We will suffer as Jesus did. But we will then be glorified as he now is. Thank you for listening to this audio recording from Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in this recording, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact us through our website. ChristKirkMI.com. That's C H R I S T 
K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.